this man is almost a different animal from me. He, he's so old. I mean, he wasn't that old, but I was, you know, five, six years old. He's so old and he moves in slow motion. Why does he do that? And I would literally follow him and like creep across the room behind him, mimicking his actions. tuned in to how it looks from here, life in the time of COVID. Truth is, life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work, and everyday circumstances come together in any person, well, it's different. Then these days, we've got the pandemic, COVID-19. That and the isolation that comes with social distancing have cut our chances for comparing notes to near zero. That's why we've decided to bring some of those perspectives to you right here. It's just too easy to think that everyone is feeling what I'm feeling, but they're not. For every person, how it looks matters. And with every interview, we're finding that we are enriched. It's really helping. My name is Mary Claire, and this week I spoke with Joe LaVisca. Joe is in his first year as a teaching faculty at Montana State University. Things are nothing but weird in higher education, but fortunately, Joe comes with years of experience in outdoor education. Our conversation ranged from the challenges of working in a gig economy to opportunities that coronavirus offers university educators. It also included lessons that Joe learned from his grandparents early in life, lessons which have now taken on new meaning. We talked in Joe's backyard in Bozeman, Montana, underneath an apple tree in an improvised, socially distanced recording studio. Let's find out how COVID-19 has affected Joe's life. Hey, Joe. Hey, How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. Here we sit under an apple tree yeah, in, in our, late August. In our blanket fort recording studio. Yeah. <laughs> Times of COVID indeed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What would you say? How has COVID affected your life? It has affected my life in every single way and in every aspect of my life. I've, I've been working toward a profession in higher education for the last five years now, mostly in outdoor spaces, right? So I generally teach environmental studies topics on field courses. This is pre-pandemic. Uh, and the great thing about field courses is you get this really tight little cohort of undergraduate students that come together for a semester or maybe like a month long course. And you get to basically live with them, camp with them, cook with them, get to know them on a personal level while you are also navigating that teacher-student relationship and really learning together about uh, ecology, leadership, and our social ecological systems that we're constantly navigating. So that was sort of my life pre-pandemic. And that all got shut down with the pandemic. Um, a lot of that can't happen right now um, because of the risk of transmission. And that's, that's as it should be. Mm -hmm. You know, I was on unemployment for some time this spring and that was helpful. And I had 
a contract agreement to start up again in the fall with Montana State University as a faculty instructor. But even up to the moment of beginning our semester, we didn't know how that was gonna look, if we were gonna be in person, if we were gonna be online. And I know that educators across the country and the world are dealing with the same questions, mm -hmm. right? We're trying to plan for a school year that is cloudy. It is not certain. And that's a challenge um, on, on sort of the broad systematic level as well as on the personal level. Well, what has been that, that weather of being inside this story of Joe mm -hmm. unfolding in the presence of this novel coronavirus? I am following a path and a profession that it's already hard to find stable work in, and, and it's even harder now. So I'm a gig worker in the sense that I work on contracts, and those contracts, they come and they go, and, and they're harder to come by now in the pandemic. And so, you know, there's, there's sort of this sense of worry that is there pretty consistently. What are the words in the worry, hmm. can you say? I think the words in the worry are, this isn't going to turn into a real job. Anything that you do. Anything that I do, yeah. And that is frightening for mm -hmm. me because I love what I do and I wanna keep doing it. And I know that to do so means to find some greater security in that. And I'm not sure that it's gonna come. Well, let me ask you this question. More and more people are finding themselves in gig work. Mm -hmm and they will completely understand what you're saying. But many listeners have heard the term and they may even have someone they love who is a gig worker, but what would you say is most misunderstood about gig work and would be helpful to clarify for people who aren't familiar with it? I think the, the phrase gig work, I didn't identify with that phrase for a long time until I realized that there is a trend where that is the opportunity that people like me have more than any other. But you may or may not be an employee of the company and you are signing a contract for a specific time period and a specific project. And when that time period and or project is up, your contract and your therefore your employment is up. And so what people may or may not understand is that comes with a paycheck, but it does not come with benefits. Mm -hmm. And it does not come with any security for the future, right? So working in, in higher education, I am an adjunct uh, instructor. Mm -hmm. And students uh, often call me Professor LaVisca, which is inaccurate. You're not a professor until you are full-time hired. Um, on the tenure track. On a tenure Conventionally, track. Conventionally, yes. Right, yeah, which you know, of course. And so, well, the, so in the, the difference is real. It's appealing to hiring entities, it would seem to me, because you save a lot of money if you're not providing benefits packages. Am I reading that right? I have a sense that we are experiencing a shifting baseline in our workforce where we are being trained or basically we're experiencing less and less availability of those benefited salaried positions and therefore we are coming to expect those to be available to us less and less. Um, and, and soon enough, it won't even be a question of whether I'm looking for a salaried position because that won't be available to me. Mm -hmm. I will work my entire career 
on contracts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that may be true for me. I don't know. Well, and so earlier you said that one of your word that the worry, the constant worry underneath the COVID circumstance is around your employment, this won't last. So is that something that is just, I'm, I'm curious about the intersection of gig work and COVID. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, has, what would you say about that? Maybe there's a, there's a silver lining in the sense that gig work allows any of us who do contract work to be flexible, right? I told you I got unemployment this spring. I used a lot of the money that I got for unemployment to start my own business. Mm. And that business is a media company making podcasts, mm -hmm. right? How cool is that? That's part of our collaboration, sort of on a meta view. That's what we're doing right here, right? right? And we wouldn't be doing that without COVID, right? I would be on a different path. Yeah. And, uh, and we wouldn't be sitting here. So there's a silver lining there. And, and I think it's, it's true that yeah, doing this sort of contract work that's not stable allows one to be flexible and to um, look in different directions on very short notice. The flip side of what worries you is where do you find strength? And one of the things I heard you say earlier is that you are able to pivot. You are able to see, oh, this isn't going so great or this is not sustainable, mm -hmm. so I'll shift and do this. Um, and I, so I don't want to run that out too far from what I've perceived, but it seems to me that that could be quite useful to a large entity like a state university, a land-grant university. Yeah, I hope so. Um, and, and I'm smiling right now because I just love teaching. Like being a participant in a classroom is so special for me. And, and so, yeah, that ability to pivot, I think there's so much room within education for us to grow in the directions that are required of us now, right? Um, and it may look like things that we may be a little uncomfortable with, like online teaching, for instance. You know, we were going in that direction before the pandemic, but the pandemic said, you're gonna do it now, <laughs> right? And we did. And we made uh, some very quick adjustments in the spring semester. So the, the phrase that I heard was educational triage because we basically had to take a curriculum that had been going quite smoothly and flip it into a brand new format, knowing full well that we weren't gonna be able to do that very gracefully. And so we needed to triage our, our goals and objectives, our learning objectives, the assignments that we were doing, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. And the students, everybody needed to be flexible about that. That continues now, this semester. Even we had the whole summer to work on that. And boy, I'll tell you, I and, and others, we worked hard to, to make our curriculum into a non-triaged, COVID-friendly curriculum Talk about that difference, triage and non-triage. What, what does that, I mean, that's lovely and catchy language. Uh -huh. It reminds me of MASH and really <laughs> some quite difficult decisions needing to be made that we heard in, in Italy uh, when they had to decide who was going to get treatment yeah. with COVID and who wasn't. Yeah, and I don't mean to imply that the work that we're doing in education is as critical as the work that's happening in the medical field because 
triage that happens in a medical sense is, is dependent on somebody's life. In education, no one's life is on the line necessarily. Yeah. Um, but there is a real difference between reacting to the situation uh, in the moment uh -huh. and knowing your situation and planning for your situation, which, you know, is where we're at now where, okay, we understand that we're in a pandemic and we need to still enact education, but there are still so many unknowns, right? Can we be in person? And if, if we are learning in person, what is required of that? Uh -huh. So at Montana State University, if we are inside a building, everyone needs a mask on at all times, some kind of face covering. And so when you're in class, that means all students are wearing masks and the teacher is wearing a mask while they're teaching. There's an option to go outside. And so that's what I've been doing is I've been bringing my, my students outside. Which, and this is Montana. And this is Montana. So it's not gonna last for long. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, and it's funny, I mean, I kind of feel like, yes, outdoor education for the win. I can take this class that was designed to be in the classroom and bring them outside. There are unexpected consequences of that that we are dealing with. I mean, even the ergonomics of where are students sitting and can they hear me when they are sort of trying to navigate the sun and the shade on a hot day or the wet grass uh, the day after it rained, you know? <laughs> when I teach outside, I can look around and see, oh, that teacher is distancing themselves in this way that I'm not thinking about or they're wearing a different style of mask that mm -hmm. allows them to maybe breathe a little easier, or mm -hmm. they're wearing a face shield, and that seems, I tried that out the other day, and it's, you can breathe easier, but your voice is reflected right back at you, uh -huh. you know? <laughs> so yeah. my students said, well, we appreciate being able to see your whole face with a face shield. Yeah. So I may actually go to that more than teaching in a mask. Uh -huh. So I wonder, given what you're seeing and experiencing, what would you say the wisdom takeaway is for you? Yeah. What is there for the students and for you? We talk in full ecology about becoming right-sized as human beings, mm -hmm. you know, being the stewards that we are because COVID is certainly showing us that we need nature, yeah. but nature doesn't need us. Sure. We are nature, mm -hmm. but the whole of the natural world is going to continue as long as the planet twirls. Mm -hmm. In that, is COVID serving? What, what would you say is the, the wisdom that's coming forward for you? For me, it, it very much is about being shown our need to slow down and that's been a theme of mine personally all my life since I grew up and watched and learned from my grandfather the value of slowness in how we move about the world and how we interact with others. And, you know, what comes with slowness is being mindful and acting with intention and actually looking around at our effect on the world, you know, small and large. How did your grandfather show you that? I have this really fond memory of following him across the room. I mean, this is like not explicit learning. This is when I was very young. But thinking like, 
this man is almost a different animal from me. He, he's so old. I mean, he wasn't that old, but I was, you know, five, six years old. He's so old and he moves in slow motion. Why does he do that? And I would literally follow him and like creep across the room behind him, mimicking his actions, just, it, just sort of in awe that there could be a creature that I was related to that moved so differently. But I really loved him. And, and so it was a really powerful lesson for me, you know, that that wasn't taught explicitly, but I learned. Yeah. And when you were watching him, as you recall, mm -hmm. what did you see about the way he interacted with his world mm -hmm. that taught you in that moment? Do you remember? Yeah, I mean, I, I picture him sort of walking through a doorway and having his hand on the door jam as he walked by, you know, and going into the kitchen and maybe um, interacting with my grandmother and some, you know, they loved each other so much and, and maybe he would touch her on the shoulder or, or something or speak to her in a way that could only be expressed if he was taking his time mm. and, and not in a hurry to be somewhere else or to do something else or to go somewhere else. Um, and I don't know that he would, like if I had been able to ask him at the time, why are you going so slow? Are you really mindful or what? I mean, he may not have said that, you mm -hmm. know, but that was the lesson I learned from that was there's a real beauty in, um, in the smallest movement taking as long as it needs to take, you know. He loved ice cream. so like scooping up a, a spoonful of ice cream and the time it takes from the bowl to your mouth. It doesn't matter how long it takes because, boy, the anticipation is better with every split second. <laughs> and, and you just saw that. Yeah, yeah. And in some ways then, yeah. wow, in some ways this is what COVID mm -hmm. is bringing, is putting right in front of us, that opportunity. Yes. Yeah. These are anxious and depressed times. We should be feeling anxiety mm -hmm. and should be. It's not surprising, let's say it that way, Sure. that we're feeling anxiety and depression. And mm -hmm. we have this opportunity right now, you and me mm -hmm. are sitting underneath an apple tree. It is late August in Montana. Mm -hmm. Soon it will be very cold here. <laughs> but over our heads are these perfectly formed apples doing the thing that apples have done every year mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. late summer, as long as there have been apples, yeah. with perfection. Exactly, yeah, and, and those lessons are always there mm -hmm. for us. Um, and that is certainly something that I love about being alive and, and, being, and paying attention to the natural world, is that we can learn so much from watching the apples grow. But I, I think it's true that as a, as a culture and as a society, we have really forgotten the, the value of going that slow. Mm. And, you know, I've heard a lot about the potential environmental benefits of a pandemic, you know, in the sense of, oh, there's cleaner water, there's less air pollution. But we also have to acknowledge that this is not how we want to get there. We do not want to get there by, um, you know, a disease that, that causes so much death and suffering. And that is true. And here we are. This is the way the world 
showed up and this is actually an effect of our own behavior. Um, it is an effect of, of our species spreading to the extent that we have spread. Um, <laughs> we are all responsible for this situation and we all have the opportunity to learn the value of that slowness that, that has been shown to us, I think. So you may have just summarized this, but this is the last question that I have for you. And if you were to stop right now and get into the elder that is inside you all the time, what is it that you would want to say as the, some guiding wisdom just today, just for now, mm. what would you say? I would say that we are living uh, with a lot of pain for the world and that's not new, but it's time to name it and it's time to let it into the light. We got a lot to work through and part of that is the despair that keeps us from, maybe keeps us in isolation or keeps us from seeing a way out of isolation. And it's worth owning that despair, naming it, and sharing it. Yeah. And it's beautiful, too. I mean, that's not a, it's not purely bad. It's just, it is what it is. But for the love of the world, we have to share this. We despair because we love. Yeah. So deeply. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you, Joe. Thank you, Mary. Yes, you're so yeah. welcome. And <laughs> this has been How It Looks From Here. And we look forward to being with you next time. How It Looks From Here is an educational collaboration between Full Ecology and the Systems Zoo. How It Looks From Here was created and produced by me, Mary Claire, and Joe LaVisca. Find us on social media and at www.fullecology.com. Support for this podcast comes from listeners like you.